0: Welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's Sermon Podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. And we hope uh, that you're having a wonderful day today. As we uh, Let me just say a little prayer before we get into the message for Palm Sunday. Lord God, we just thank you for all your love and mercy in our life. We pray for those who are sick. Lord God, that you would help them be well. And we also pray, Lord, for peace and comfort knowing uh, that you are over all things and you've got us in your hands. We pray for conflicts that are in our own homes, or in our lives, our country, our world, and we pray for an end to war and that you would bring peace, especially there in Ukraine, Lord God, where our hearts are broken for what is unfolding there. Uh, Lord God, we pray for our church and all churches uh, and the ministries, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen the hearts of believers with greater faith. Our own, Lord God, too, that you'd give us greater faith greater love for the people around us, greater courage and boldness to stand up for truth. And Lord God, we pray for greater humility in our hearts as well, as we be moldable and teachable into the things that you would have for us. Thank you for this Palm Sunday and all that it means. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you would like to join along with me, I'm going to be reading from Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, and then also 19, chapter 19 verse 28 to 42, uh, as we think about uh, this, what happened on this day long ago. And so Luke 18, 31 to 34, it says this, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit upon him. They will flog him and they will kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what Jesus was talking about. And then over to chapter 19, verse 28, it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage in Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying this colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. But Jesus replied to them, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. I love Christmas time. I love the Christmas story. But I love Easter Even more than that, we Christians, you know, we have two major holidays a year, holy days. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of our Savior. But this week, we celebrate the most important thing that he came to do and how he did it. He saved us from our sins. Nothing matters more than this truth. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they that tell the story of our Savior, they spend one-third of their Gospels, each of them, on Jesus' final week, because what happens this final week is most important of all. Jesus' final week, uh, long ago, it began with Palm Sunday, which we remember today, when the day when the Lord rode into Jerusalem a hero. They spread their cloaks on the road. They waved palm branches. They shared with everyone and spoke about the miracles that they had seen. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a joyful occasion on that day. But this joyful adoration of him that day would quickly turn to hateful condemnation by the week's end excuse me, for most of the crowd would turn on Jesus and abandon him to the cross. Oh, but how he loved them still. And this wasn't the first time the people would turn on Jesus in such a quick manner like this. Near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, while he was in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus spoke, and at first they loved him and praised him and were so excited about him and cheered him. But then Jesus told them that God was opening the door to the Gentiles as well. And in that word, these people turned immediately and began to curse him and even tried to kill him way back at the beginning of his ministry. We also read that the crowd that he fed at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they loved him, adored him, were ready to crown him king, the Bible says. But then the very next day, when he tried to teach them instead of give them just more bread, they all abandoned him in one day. Except for the twelve. And there were other times that we read about in Jesus' ministry. When they praised him one day. And then cursed him the next day. They liked him and then disliked him. Boy, the world really rides the waves of approval. You know, and disapproval. But through it all, Jesus remained a steady course. He knows who he is and what he came to do. He doesn't get too excited at their approvals and cheers, and he doesn't get too discouraged by the sway of their opinion and their rejection. He is focused. The crowd is the crowd, but Jesus stayed the course. This dramatic change, though, in just one week from the chance of approval and victory on Palm Sunday to the yelling of crucify him on Good Friday is jarring to us, maybe because it's so sadly uh, a reality in our world and even in us. It makes us maybe reflect a little bit on how we can praise the Lord on Sunday, but on Monday we can doubt him or Tuesday we can disobey him or Thursday we can mock him. Or Friday, we can do the very thing we told him we would never do. This is the reality of every human heart and how it is swayed by public opinions and need for approval and our own sinful desires. So we're maybe not that different from the crowd on that Palm Sunday. We praise our Savior and we nail him to a cross. But this is part of his story. Part of what we must see that jesus knew our sinful hearts he knew our wanderings and yet he remained faithful to us even when we were faithless to him he still rode in that day knowing all that would happen. He still came to save us even though we don't deserve him. He knew what the crowd would do but he still loved them and in the moment he still probably appreciated the praise and adoration of the children and the families and their hearts that were adoring him and believing in him and he came to die for them and that makes me love him even more i want to mention four things about our scripture here about palm sunday the first is that i began with reading luke 18 where jesus tells his disciples very clearly why they are going to jerusalem he tells them what is going to happen to him before it happens and the bible says when he does they don't understand But he is as clear as day about what is going to happen. Jesus knew he was riding into Jerusalem to take up a cross. The crowds and the disciples might have thought that he was coming in to become their king and overthrow Rome or whatever. But Jesus knew what would happen by the weekend. And notice that he even gives seven specifics of what's going to happen to him here. He knew he would be handed over to the Gentiles, which means that his own people would reject him and turn him over to the Romans. Jesus knew that that was going to happen. God's own people who had been waiting and praying for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come, they would not recognize him when he was before him, nor would they want him to be their king instead then themselves would turn him over to be crucified, rejected. John 1, 10 through 12 says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who do receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Maybe some of those along the road, maybe some of those children who chanted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, maybe in their hearts, they were some of those who did receive him, who did believe in him amongst a world that did not. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus knew that he would be handed over to the Gentiles, rejected by the majority of his people who he came to save. Jesus also knew, though, it says, that he would be mocked and insulted and spit upon and flogged and killed. He says each one of these things. He is very detailed. Have you ever been mocked? Have you ever been insulted? Have you ever been spit upon? Our God has been all three. He knows what that is like. Each one is a sign of great disrespect. Our Lord was disrespected, even though he was the son of God. They mocked him. They insulted him. They spit upon him. They flogged him, which meant that he would have been beaten with rods and whips and fists. A Roman flogging was so severe that it often killed the prisoner. It was 40 times being hit while a person was chained to a post. Our king went through that for us. He endured that on the way to the cross. And he was nailed to that cross. He was beaten up before he was even nailed. He took every hit and all the insults and a crown of thorns was forced upon his head. He heard all the words spoken against him. He took it without even opening his mouth. Because he knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. And so for the joy set before him, he endured it. That's our God. He stayed the course. They killed him. Jesus knew they would. He knew he would die. But he also knew of the resurrection. He mentions that there in Luke 18. Ahead of time, before they even go in. He says they're going to crucify me. But on the third day I'm going to rise again. And this is astounding. Because there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. 27 of them he fulfilled in one day. There was the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. We read he did that. There was the prophecy in Psalm 41.9 that he would be betrayed by one of his friends. It was Judas. There was the prophecy in Zechariah 13.7 that all the disciples would abandon him and flee. Even Peter there was the prophecy in Zechariah eleven twelve 12, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Even the amount, 30 pieces, was listed in the Old Testament. I mean, how could the teachers of the law and the high priests who, who paid the money to Judas and counted out that money, how could they not have seen? There was the prophecy in Isaiah 50, verse 6, of his flogging. In Psalm twenty-two eighteen, 18, of how they would divide up his garments and cast lots for his clothing. In Isaiah 53, 5, how he would be pierced for our transgressions. It mentions crucifixion before crucifixion was even a thing. In Psalm 69, 21, it says how they would offer him vinegar to drink when in his thirst. In Exodus 12, 46, how not one of his bones would be broken. How is that even possible when you get hit 40 times in a flogging? How is that that your bones are all intact? But they were. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And in Psalm 16, 10, he would be resurrected. I read this week from a scientist how mathematically the odds of a person fulfilling even just eight prophecies was over one in one hundred trillion. But Jesus fulfilled all three hundred about him that were written hundreds of years before he even came. And twenty seven of them he fulfilled in a single day. Jesus even told them the last prophecy himself that it would be on the third day that he would rise, and on the third day, that is when he did. And I think this is so important for us to see this, that Jesus fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about him, every one. He was the chosen one. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, without doubt, our Savior. These things written about him that he mentions before entering into Jerusalem, they were written so that we might believe. How can we deny the King of Kings when it is so plain? The second thing, though, I want to mention about our scripture is that there was this donkey that we're told, you know, and, and he was, it seems in this scripture, this donkey was born with a purpose that the owners had no clue about. But Jesus knew as he was approaching the city, he knew exactly where to find the donkey that had never been written like it had been set apart and waiting there for him and for this sacred moment. It's, it's kind of like in the Christmas story. Those Bethlehem shepherds, those wise men, that star, that stable, that manger. It was It was all supposed to happen like it did. And it's the same with Jesus' final week. We read the same things. How there's this donkey in a town waiting to take him into the city. There is this Last Supper upper room that Jesus knew about where they were to have that God-ordained Lord's Supper right there. Every detail just seems to be waiting and ready for Jesus. And I love this part of the story that even a donkey had a purpose. Our family uh, has just taken in a new dog. It showed up at our house a month ago on a cold, snowy morning. Just a small brown poodle that was out on our front lawn underneath our tree, shivering with no tags, abandoned on our front lawn. Even my wife, who hates dogs, and said we would never have another, (laughs) she fell in love with this little one that we now call Lucy, or Lulu. She's so special, we've even given her two names. But we sometimes talk about, I mean, it may sound silly, but we sometimes talk about how God has brought her to us. You know? Now, are we overdoing that, or could it be? I mean, could it be that God... Is to be trusted with all the details of our life. Even something like this. Even something as small as the donkey that would carry him into the city. That there was a particular one born with this purpose. Set apart for only him. Could a donkey have a purpose? Could it be that our Lord is so holy that a donkey was waiting for only him to ride? Could it be that before they even got to where they were going, the Lord is telling his disciples, I've taken care of every detail of what we will need. I mean, does this teach us something that we might need today of how we can trust the Lord with all the details of our life and what is coming and where we need to be? I mean, that we can trust you know, that, that our kids were supposed to be our kids and where we live is supposed to be where we are and that our neighbor, God has a plan for them and maybe he's put them right next door for a reason and the job that we get tomorrow is the job that he's prepared for us to have. I mean, is the Lord so involved in the world and in our lives like this? I mean, even the donkey is there waiting for him. Jesus said the owners will come out and ask, why are you taking the donkey? And Jesus tells the disciples exactly how to answer. The Lord needs it and will return it shortly. And so this tells us here that the, do- the owners, they had no idea their donkey had a divine call. I mean, to them, it's just their donkey. They had no idea that for 2,000 years, churches all over the world would be talking about their donkey. You know, <laughs> but they, here we are. I believe that none of us realizes uh, that what we have and how God is going to use our lives and our resources for the kingdom until it happens, you know, and until later on looking back. The boy who had two fish and five loaves, he he had no idea that day that his little offering would become a miracle and written about within holy scriptures that we would all be looking at. I don't think that we see our time in our time, how God is really working in our lives and working all things together for his plan. We just have to be willing to let him use what we have. Those owners had to just say, well, gosh, if the Lord needs it, take it. And they did, you know, and that's what we say in our life. Well, if the Lord needs my home, if the Lord needs my money, if the Lord needs my service, if, the, if, the, if there's something I can do to help contribute to what he is trying to accomplish in the world, I want to be a part of that. And we see that in this story. The donkey back then also was a, was a big symbol for the coming Messiah they knew would be riding on one. And, and unlike a war horse, the donkey was a symbol of peace, which meant that the Messiah was coming not to declare war on his enemies, but making peace with him, everlasting peace. Third thing I want to mention, the importance we see in this scripture is how they laid their cloaks down. This is really important. On the road, and they people waved palm branches, we're told. And the, the words uh, that they sing or speak, they're all important here. All of it were signs and symbols back then of the coming Messiah and of submission to a new king. And they were declaring victory already for this king cloaks being laid down meant, I honor you, and I am going to follow you. That's what they were saying when they were laying down their coats on the road. Those who came out of their houses and cheered Jesus with the words, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they're being very courageous that day. For they were saying, this is my king. And they were saying it in a Roman-occupied land. For they were forbidden to call anyone Lord except for Caesar. But publicly, with guards right down the road, they were saying, blessed is he. He is my Lord and my King. The palm branches, which aren't mentioned in our Luke account, but are in every other gospel, was a sign of victory. For Israel, to wave a palm branch and to say what they did, again, is very bold with Roman soldiers standing by. It would be like us waving an American flag if our land had been taken over by another. The palm branch was a national symbol like this. This was the beginnings of what the Pharisees feared was a rebellion a rising up that is why they told the people to be quiet and why they asked Jesus to quiet his followers they feared the consequences of a roman counterattack but jesus says to them if these people are quiet in this moment even the stones are going to cry out and what he meant was that the foundations of this city are going to shake You know, the history of the people who have seen what God can do in this place. The faith of our fathers is going to cry out. The prophets who are buried beneath our feet are going to rise. The stones here of this city that have witnessed so much, they're going to cry out. If we don't praise God, all of creation will, he is saying. The whole earth is his and declares his name. And this is the day. That it was meant to be. And so Jesus is saying we can't be silent at the time of his coming. We can't let the fear, the doubts, or the public approval, or the unbelief of a world around us silence our praise and worship of the Lord. Declaring who he is and the truth of who he is and the victory that he has brought to our life. We must declare it. We must stand and speak. One of my favorite stories of World War II is of a Bulgarian Orthodox priest named Metropolitan Carol. He was a tall guy with a congregation of 300 Christians who all boldly marched down to the train station in 1943 when they heard that their king had given orders to send 5,000 Jews to a concentration camp. They were arrested and sent to these, or were going to be sent to these camps. And, and these Jews were their neighbors and citizens from their town. And they were the church of that town. And so they would not just stand by and let this happen, not be silent in this. And so led by Metropolitan Carol, their priest, this congregation of 300 marched down to the train station where the people were being put into boxcars and with guns and Nazis all around, they walked up and Metropolitan Carol shouted from the Gospel of Ruth where it says, where you go, we will will go, and your people are our people, and your God is our God, and right there at the train station, the 300 Christians and the, and the 5,000 Jews all began praising God, I kid you not, look it up in the history books, and Metropolitan Carroll and his church blocked the tracks, and they pushed the guns aside, and the train never left the station, And an interesting fact is that not one Jew in Bulgaria was killed by the Nazis in World War II. There is power. When we praise the name of the Lord and we come together in faith, then not be silenced. Even today, even in small ways, I remember praising God in hospital rooms with people who had seen so much and feared what was going to come. I remember praising God in those places and how the circumstances were not going to silence us. We believed and knew the Lord. I remember at an annual meeting where we had to close the covenant Bible college that was so dear to us and our hearts were sad, but we knew of our God. We knew he was going to start something new even amidst this disappointment. And so we praised him as a congregation and as pastors and as leaders within that conference and and believing God for all he had done. We cannot let the circumstances or the people around us or the world silence our faith and our praise. I think of Paul and Silas in jail locked up in chains and yet in Acts 16 it says about midnight they're praying and they're singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening and as scripture says all of a sudden the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. On this Palm Sunday, God had ordained praise. And so Jesus said, if they keep quiet, even the stones are going to cry out. And then the last thing I want to draw our attention to in our scripture for this morning is that there's only two times in the Bible where it tells us that Jesus wept. Once was at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. And the other time is right here on Palm Sunday. Halfway down the Mount of Olives, it says, when Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. And he tells us why. It was because he could see its future. Jesus knew that these people would reject him. And then instead of putting their trust in him, in his salvation, they would put their trust in their leaders in Rome and and those leaders in Rome would eventually turn on them and destroy them in 70 AD Israel would fight and Rome would fight and and Rome would destroy their temple and their city and all the people would be have to flee i tell you how difficult it must be to be god i mean can you imagine You've given humanity your love and its free will and you've loved them and tried to tell them and show them the way and warn them of what was going to come if they chose against and and yet they still do what they want and and God knows it all in advance what is coming and so that must be so painful for him as we see here. I think this scripture is important because it shows us that God isn't up there complacent to our choices or Or even worse, that he's somehow excited to punish his people who screw up. No, he's not happy to bring down disaster or watch people suffer. That is not what we find in Jesus Christ. No, we find that he weeps over us and the consequences of our choices. Because he wants none to perish. He weeps when he enters Jerusalem. When everybody else is cheering, Jesus is weeping because he can see their future. I often, you know, show photos on Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, you know, on the trips that I uh, go there and I bring back some things. And, and, and one of the, the most important pictures that I show you, and we're going to try to show it to you here now, is that halfway down the hill uh, of Mount of Olives where Jesus came in, you know, Jesus stopped, it says, and wept over the city. And right there today... There is this small little one-room church that they've built halfway down where they think he might have stopped and wept. And the church is called the Teardrop, and it's, it's made in the shape of a tear, and inside the church is just but one window, and it faces the city. And when you look through the window, you can see the old city of Jerusalem before you. And right out front is the Temple Mount, And then you can see right behind it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where the the tomb is. And you can see the place where the cross is formed there on the window. And you can see where the cross, where the Golgotha would have been, you know, um, where they crucified people. And the point of this window is that when Jesus is riding into the city, he stopped at a place halfway down where he could see everything that was coming the temple that he would cleanse, the spot of the upper room off to the left where he would have the last supper with his disciples, the garden below him where he would pray on the night that he would be arrested, the courtyard where he would have to stand before Pilate, the location where he would have to die on a cross, and even the empty tomb that he would be laid in. From this location, our Savior could see it all. All that he would be willing to give in the hopes that even one of those would be saved. And I think the emotion of what was coming, not just for him, but for them, overwhelmed our Savior at that moment. And he wept in love for them as he still weeps over our world. This week, I encourage you to take time to read the scriptures I encourage you to come to Monday, Thursday service and remember his sacrifice. Take time on Good Friday to remember the cross. Take time to really worship Christ the Lord on Easter and the good news of how he overcame death for you and rose that you and I might have everlasting life. This week for us Christians means everything. He is our hope, our eternal hope. Our Lord never disappoints and all how he loves you. Praise be to our King. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you are able to join us in worship again soon. To stay up to date with all of Bethlehem Covenant Church programs and events, head to bccwaverly.org.